0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Rafael Ilishayev is a co-founder and co-CEO of GoPuff. He's a first-generation immigrant that grew up in an entrepreneurial family in the New York metro area. In this conversation, we discuss the instant needs market, managing a fast-growing business, how he raised over $1 billion by operating fairly quietly, the COVID-19 impact, and where GoPuff will be in 20 years. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rafael, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Tiny. Do you want to sell your wonderful internet business? I can't recommend Tiny enough. We've had Andrew Wilkinson come on the podcast multiple times, and he's fantastic. Tiny partners with founders to give them quick and straightforward exits that protect their team and their culture. They'll make an offer within a week, they'll close the deal within a month, and they'll keep your business operating for the long term. You can get in touch with them at tinycapital.com, and they'll let you know their level of interest within a couple of days. Andrew and his partner are entrepreneurs. They've been in your seat. They know how to speak your language. They know what you're worried about. And they can help you very quickly accomplish your goals. If you want to sell an internet business, Tiny should be the first stop you make. Head on over to tinycapital.com. I can't recommend them enough. And when you talk to them, you'll see why. tinycapital.com Next up is Level, LVL. They're a new crypto investing platform that I'm an investor in. They allow anyone to trade an unlimited number of times per month for free. That's right. They've got no trading fees and no spreads in the spot market. It's completely free. They make money on their other products and services. So if you buy or sell Bitcoin on any exchange, you're spending too much on trading fees. Go use Level. They're the first free crypto exchange. Use Level to save money and trade an unlimited number of times. You can go to LVL.co slash POP. Again, LVL.co slash POP pump go check out level the new free crypto trading platform lastly is masterworks froth it's a milky concoction that is great on top of your cappuccino but not in your investment portfolio if you've been watching the stock market lately there's enough froth to fill a stadium of pumpkin spice venti lattes The S&P is trading at over 37 times earnings. The top five tech stocks are up over 50% this year, but the rest of the index is only up 5%. It's not a great setup if you're looking for diversity and bonds aren't much better. But because of low interest rates, 97% of bonds are yielding less than 5% and the average savings account returns just half a percent. So how do you avoid the froth while preserving your net worth? Listen to the professionals. According to Deloitte, 86% of wealth managers recommend investing in ART. In fact, Blue Chip Art outperformed the S&P by 180% from 2000 to 2018, with almost no correlation to the stock market. The art market is projected to grow from $1.7 trillion to $2.6 trillion by 2026 for a reason. The ultra-wealthy continue to invest in art to preserve their wealth and earn attractive returns. But unless you have an extra $10 million to buy a painting, you're out of luck. Until now, Masterworks.io is the only platform that lets you invest in art from artists like Banksy, Cows, and Monet. Masterworks.io is making investing in art as easy as buying stocks online at a fraction of the cost. Recently, Masterworks.io sold their first Banksy masterpiece for a 32% return, double what the S&P did over that same time period. With the Fed injecting money into the economy like a paper money vaccine, sophisticated investors are allocating a portion of their portfolio to hard money assets like art to hedge against inflation. Due to recent demand, the waitlist to invest on Masterworks is over 20,000 people. But listeners of this podcast can skip the entire waitlist. That's right. You listen to this podcast, you get to skip the whole thing if you go to masterworks.io and enter promo code POMP. Again, masterworks.io, enter promo code POMP, and you will skip the entire waitlist. All right, let's get into this episode. I hope you guys enjoy this one.
1: Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment
0: or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Raphael here with me. Dude, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Pomp, thanks for having me, man.
0: Absolutely. Let's just get started with kind of your background. Um, how did you and your co-founder end up starting the company and, and kind of where were you born and, and just why? Yeah,
1: our origin story starts even before you, and I met, right? Uh, you know, both of us are first generation Americans. Uh, you know, our parents came to this country uh, looking for a better life. Uh, both of my parents are, are entrepreneurs, right? They started their own business. My mom was in the pharmacy business and started her, her, her own pharmacy pharmacy. My dad was in the restaurant business. And both for you, Kira and I, right, ever since we were kids, uh, we were working with our parents, right, doing whatever it took, like 10, 11, 12 years old. We had very unorthodox uh, upbringings in terms of uh, just really, really getting us encompassed uh, with business and uh, being really customer-centric, customer-obsessed, and delivering kind of financial responsibility along the way. So my first day of college, uh, Kira and I went to Drexel. I moved from North Jersey, he moved from South Jersey, which was a shorter commute from him. And, uh, you know, we met each other the very first day and then immediately connected, right? We immediately connected because we shared the same values. We really understood one another. We worked together since we were kids. And, uh, it's, it's something that just literally made sense for us from day one. And we recognize that, you know, by our second year that there's a pretty glaring uh, need in the market, right? The in-store experience, uh, left a lot to be desired. No one one wanted to go in-store in in college. And on-demand delivery services, uh, or what we call these third-party platforms, were anything but on-demand, right? They relied on the traditional infrastructure uh, of existing businesses to operate, which are good for it to scale quickly, but not really great for consumers or financial feasibility. So we did something, you know, kind of against conventional wisdom. We said, if we're going to make this work and kind of make money alongside of it, uh, we're going to need to vertically integrate. We're going to need to own all the inventory and, uh, and deliver to, uh, to end consumers from our own micro fulfillment centers, uh, which at the time was not the best idea, right? People were like, Uber and, uh, and Airbnb are starting to become very big. They're like, you can't go on an asset-heavy model. It doesn't work. But for us, it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to, to run any other model. Uh, so we did Things a little differently than kind of most day area startups, right? For first two years, we hadn't raised any money. Uh, we operated a profitable business from day one. And then uh, two years later, after we expanded to five cities and like four additional verticals outside of like the snack and drink vertical we launched in, we raised our first uh, our first dollars, our first VC dollars, uh, which was the first dollars into the business. And then we went into complete stealth mode. So for, for three and a half, four years, no PR, uh, no outside announcing, no fundraising announcements. Uh, we raised four rounds kind of in, in between those four years, uh, but we were just aggressively expanding. We went from you know, opening up uh, like four or five buildings uh, a year to opening up 15 or 20 buildings a month. And uh, we expanded to new categories. No, no secret we started as a college delivery service, but you know, we expanded to over-the-counter medication and household and grocery and pet and baby and all these incremental new categories uh, that kind of continue to grow. And just this past year, we kind of, uh, uh, started telling our story to the world. We started telling, you know, you know here we are servicing 500 major U.S. cities. Uh, this BevMo acquisition gives us the access to the only state we don't really service today. Uh, and it gives us access in a pretty massive way. And we're just excited for what the future has in hold for us.
0: So let's go back to the beginning. Um, why start a business rather than uh, kind of have one of the fleeting moments? I feel like everyone in college is always like, man, you know, I wish X, whatever that thing is. Uh, you guys took it further and actually started the business. Was it the upbringing? Was it just, hey, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like, like what was the, the reasoning behind actually wanting to start the business? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think uh, both of
1: our parents, both parents, were kind of giving us the confidence really early on as kids and instilling us all those values uh, to kind of get off the ground. Uh, You know, he actually started even another startup earlier, right? He was 17 years old. He had a company called Qualified Gems where he was selling jewelry online. He was doing a couple million dollars before he entered college. So, you know, he he had all this confidence and his motivation to go solve this problem. Fortunately for us, the problem that we were solving uh, was in the hundreds of billions in the total addressable market when we started, now in the multi-trillions with all the incremental categories that we entered into. So not only did we solve a problem that was really important for for our, our own use case to solve, we solved a problem that was important for many, many others to solve as well.
0: Got it. And so the idea of vertical integration, you already mentioned it, like every business in the world over the last 10 years has been obsessed with asset light, asset light. How do I build a marketplace? Right? How do I do on-demand? Asset light you took this opposite approach of how do we vertically integrate? How do we own the inventory? What did you feel like you knew that other people were missing or, or why go kind of, um, against the grain and and do something that everyone else was really optimizing not to do. this uh, pump, this is a
1: hard business, right? This is, uh, you know, opening up warehouses getting liquor licenses, doing it like, this is like the hard way of expanding into, uh, to what we call this instant needs category, uh, but ultimately, it's it's not like an easy thing to scale. So a lot of people just kind of push it to the side. It's like, well, I don't want to be in the business of opening up micro fulfillment centers and stocking inventory, and worrying about supply chain and logistics, and then opening up more massive distribution centers to support these things. It's a lot easier to scale, especially in the beginning, when you don't have to deal with those things. But as a byproduct, right, these third-party platforms have to monetize the gig economy, right? So... Make the spread of whatever they charge uh, the customer to what uh, the driver's take rate is. For us, you know, like everything we draw, we charge in delivery fees, which is a flat one ninety five plus the tip, is a direct through to the driver. We have no influence on the service or delivery fees. We make our money on the on the gross margin of the goods. And fortunately for us in our space and uh, uh, and the price comps that we're looking at, those gross
0: margins are very very healthy. So our unit economics as a byproduct are super strong. Got it. And what was the decision behind basically not talking to anyone about any of this for three or four years, right? You, again, kind of bucked the trend. Everyone else wants to brag about every single fundraising round. Uh, literally, they wake up in the morning and they issue a press release uh, talking about how great they are. You did the exact opposite. Why?
1: You know, it kind of goes back right to our, you know, our origin story and how fortunate we were to have really great coaches around us from, from day one. Like, everyone uh, that we had and to this day that, that coach us and, you know, make myself and you cheer better kind of continue to instill this customer, the customer's the only thing that matters mindset, nothing else matters. And like, as we looked at, you know, the value of doing a press release over a fundraise that we just did, right. It's, it was more ego driven than it was consumer driven. So it's like the reason to do it is just to, to, as you mentioned, right, to tell the world how great you are, which is nothing but bad. Right, it doesn't do any. It doesn't. It doesn't provide any any real value. Right, for us, right, the reason we raised the money was to get Gopa more available nationally faster. Right, make more products available. Right, and create more of these moments that were important for our customers. So ultimately, you know, it did nothing but drive. You know, what we thought would drive ego. Uh, so we said, there, there's no reason to do that. We're going to put the customer truly first then this is something that we're just not going to stand behind.
0: Got it. And so how is the business going so far? You mentioned a couple of metrics. I don't know what you've shared publicly, but how much capital have you raised? Who'd you raise it from? And how large has the business gotten to today?
1: Yeah, so the the business is growing very, very fast. (laughs) Uh, We're opening, like I said, we're opening roughly 15 to 20 of these micro fulfillment centers a month. Uh, We're expanding very, very rapidly in the West Coast, uh, in, in New York City. Uh, which will be a fun launch in the first half of next year. Uh, uh, New Orleans and Las Vegas, those are the only metros that we're not in in the U.S. today. And we have an aggressive look at the suburbs uh, for for next year as well. Uh, We service 500 major U.S. cities uh, today. Uh, And the moments that we expanded into, right, I I alluded to them earlier, uh, this over-the-counter medication category, this household category, uh, this pet and baby. I never thought Seven years ago, when we started this business, that we'd be an authority in the baby category, you know. But here we are, right? You know, growing hundreds and hundreds of percent year over year uh, in a category that's very, very new. And we're looking to expand that even more, right? We're looking to add even more into that space. In terms of uh, uh like f- fundraising, we raised just shy of one and a half billion dollars. It allowed us to kind of remain aggressive and continue to open up uh, these uh, these licenses. and and facilities very, very quickly. But I'll tell you, like, while we did that, all of that, we really had financial visibility and financial acumen in mind as kind of step one. So if you look at our top markets today, so markets that are open for over 18 months, 100% of those top markets are profitable. So it's like, we we built a model that's really repeatable. We really focused on, on nailing this business model early on, right, when we were profitable for our first two years, and then scaling it and then exploding it instead of kind of building on top of a business model that was generating losses.
0: Got it. And so when you think through um, kind of the business model today, uh, why go after these micro-fulfillment centers and and kind of the vertical integration could be done many, many different ways, right? You even see um, maybe like a Whole Foods at kind of a really grand scale. Now they're testing in New York City uh, the idea of turning their stores into warehouses and, and really optimizing for online delivery, what is kind of the strategy? Is it just that you're more nimble? You can kind of service a smaller radius around a micro-fulfillment center, but you can have more of them and therefore it cuts down on time and cost? Or, or just walk me through kind of why micro-fulfillment rather than maybe just 10 across the country um, as the strategy.
1: So there's a, there's a number of uh, reasons behind it. Uh, one of the things that's really important is being able to own the entire consumer experience end-to-end. End. So when you mess up, right, it's your own fault. It's not a delivery partner uh, that uh, you know, or or a merchant partner that uh, kind of caused the the break in the consumer experience. I think too, uh, and really important is speed, right? You want to be able to place these things very very close to to uh, uh, to your end customers. We've gotten really good at mapping out the delivery zones outside the, these micro fulfillment centers and how many micro fulfillment centers we need per city. You know, some cities, you know, like a, like a Dallas has like fifteen or sixteen micro fulfillment centers today to service. Uh, one given, uh, you know, metro, which is, you know, Plano and all, all those surrounding areas. But ultimately for us, you got to optimize to to be able to, one, uh, be there where your customers are, right? And two, uh, be able to deliver very, very quickly and own the entire experience end to end. In terms of, you know, your marginal structure, right? Your marginal structure, again, depends on, you know, what kind of goods you sell and, you know, how well you buy to well, how well you sell. And, you know, right now we're, we're very comped to what people typically see in store, uh, like, in your, you know, whatever your local CVS or your Walgreens. So it's typical to what they see inside of an in-store experience, but still with a very, very
0: he- healthy margin profile. Got it. And walk me through, like, what does a micro-fulfillment center entail? Is this a warehouse that's kind of on the edge of the city and people are going in and out, but it looks kind of like a, what people would envision as like an Amazon warehouse? Is it a you know second story somewhere and literally you've got delivery drivers running up and down stairs? Like, what exactly does a micro-fulfillment center entail?
1: Yeah. So our, our average MFC is roughly 8,000 square feet. Um, it's usually in the middle of a uh, of a city, right? You want to be as close to the customer as possible, right? So, like, we have some in the outskirts to serve the service, like the suburbs. Uh, but predominantly, these MFCs are in the middle of, of U.S. cities. They're on a the ground level. Uh, they have, you know, a way to get loading. Uh, they have a liquor liquor enableities in, in them. So, like, in some in some cities uh, where regulatory it allows, it's inside the MFC. In other cities, it's right next to an MFC. So we'll have a liquor store. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we position these things to be as close to the customer and to be able to continue to expand on these moments that are important for our customers, right? Next year, we're going to be launching quite a few new verticals uh, that we're really excited about. And we want to make sure that as we launch these new verticals, we can remain a one-stop shop for our customers So continuing to kind of use uh, vertical integration to get into new categories that are important for our customers.
0: Got it. Walk me through the decision as to when you enter a new market. Like, how do you evaluate which markets are the ones to enter and, and uh, kind of sequentially where do you go?
1: Yeah, so we built uh, something we call GMOT. Uh, it's a GoPub market optimization tool. Uh, I think our team loves acronyms uh, here. <laughs> but essentially, it's, uh, it's a model that, that uses kind of all the internal data, uh, the, uh, uh, what we call intent to purchase. So, folks that are getting onto the platform trying to order GoPub. But it's giving them a message that, uh, uh, that they can't order, uh, plus a bunch of tapestry tools. So lookalikes of like, what does a uh, what does a of customer order and look like today versus what are the lookalikes all over the country? And then they'll develop heat maps on where to go. And I can tell you, like, as uh, we've grown and as our customer base has developed, those heat maps and those high, like high areas have changed dramatically. Right? Like our first two years, it was you know, predominantly college students today, you know, sub 15% of our user base is college. So it, it, the, the user base has grown tremendously. So it's, uh, it, it kind of, u- we utilize that data and we use that regression model to then map where the next sites to enter into.
0: Got it. And then walk me through the same kind of analysis for new product categories, right? When you want to add on uh, some of these verticals, how do you evaluate which ones are the, the next ones you're going to add? Yeah, we go back to the customer,
1: right? Like our, our number one way that we look at it, right? We obviously have all all, all the the market data, uh, but we'll look at like failed search results, right? Like something re- really simple and like, hey, what are people searching for versus, you know, the, the results are not populating well. And sometimes that means, hey, we're missing a certain skew that people really, really want that we don't carry. Uh, versus like, you know, we're missing a whole category of goods that we need to enter into in a very, very big way. Like, you know, before we were in the baby category, uh, a top five search term was diapers, right? And we're like, you know, you know, do we really want to get into the baby space? Uh, but then ultimately, we we let the customer kind of uh, dictate for us, right? With the, the space we need to be in and how do we continue to expand uh, in this sense that needs category. So, you know, ultimately for us, we, we take a customer first approach on, on category expansion, and uh, how do we believe uh, it to be, you know, an important strategy of what we do?
0: Absolutely. Walk me through the BevMo acquisition in terms of uh, kind of how that came together and, and why that was so attractive for you guys.
1: You know, BevMo is really, really interesting. Uh, one, uh, GoPup, as much as we've expanded, uh, we have not expanded into the fifth largest economy at all. Uh, we were not in, uh, in California um, in, in any way. And uh, when we evaluated kind of the California expansion, it's either we continue to expand the way that we expanded and the regulatory framework in California for alcohol is very, very complicated. It's kind of acquire liquor licenses. Or, or we uh, acquire a locally beloved brand that already has all the infrastructure for us to aggressively enter the state. Um, and there's really no comp to bevmo bevmo is a one-of-a-kind asset in, uh, in California that is really, really loved by the customers that are in. There's 4 million uh, customers in their loyalty base. And, uh, you know, the combination of that, their leadership team, and the infrastructure that we inherited to be able to kind of enable uh, GoPuff's micro fulfillment strategy within Abemo, uh really was, uh, was the decision to, to enter and ultimately give GoPuff uh, to all of our
0: California customers. I love that reasoning. Uh, in terms of the actual business you're in, most people would think of this as, oh, they do food delivery or they do goods delivery. You keep using the terminology instant needs. Uh, talk through what exactly does that mean to you, and kind of why do you view it that way rather than just, you know, on-demand delivery or whatever other terminology others would use.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Pomp.
0: You know, for for us,
1: uh, we thought about like what are immediate everyday needs that people need. And again, it started off as snacks and drinks, right? That was the the 2013 version of of Instant Needs. And it kept expanding so rapidly into the other categories that people want. So like, even though that we play in this Instant Needs category of continuing to deliver immediate everyday essentials uh, to our customers, we're going to continue to expand and deliver things from a one-stop shop basis. So like what's important to our customers and what our customers keep telling us is not only to be able to get these products, but to be able to get these products bundled up into one order. So yeah, I am in the mood for ice cream, but I also want toilet paper and laundry detergent delivered to me, right? And for that use case, that's the immediate everyday needs that's important for them. So ultimately, like, we're going to continue to expand to those use cases that are important for us. Again, utilizing our business model of uh, you know vertical integration to deliver it inside of our fulfillment centers. So we don't have any plans to kind of like you know, partner, go in store, pick up, up that incremental need that someone wants, and then deliver it to them. We're going to continue to add them within uh, within our MFCs and uh, and deliver it to our consumers.
0: Absolutely. And COVID-19 obviously had this massive impact in just society in general. Everyone had to go sit at home. I'm assuming that that was a massive tailwind uh, to your business. What did you see in terms of uh, kind of earlier this year and into the end of the year with uh, consumer either behavior changes or just uh, kind of affinity for uh, what you're doing? What a ride 2020 has been, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you, you say that like somebody who spent many nights not sleeping.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, it. Was it was it was definitely um, definitely a lot of learnings, right? So our business was was growing triple digits year over year uh, pre-COVID, right? We were already kind of at a major accelerant. The business was developing, and then the COVID was like an incremental shot of adrenaline for us, right? Um, all these new categories that we entered into uh, saw growths, you know, up, up to like a thousand percent year over year. Right. And uh, in some of our newer categories and and development of them, especially kind of in the the early months of COVID. uh, And even now, right, we're still seeing a massive, massive growth uh, year over year, but it was being able to adapt to that, right? Like we were one of the first uh, uh, delivery uh, companies to uh, to enable no contact delivery. We provide PPE masks. Like I'm talking about really early, like in March, Uh, our tech team, I don't think slept in the month of April, just developing tools, uh, to really make sure that our, our drivers, operations associates, and our customers were safe. And we frankly did the best we could. We, we worked around the clock to really make sure that everyone was safe and to be able to continue to deliver an amazing experience to our customer. And I think it really is a testament to our team, how everyone came together, um, you know, especially the folks on the ground, especially our driver partners, especially our OAs uh, that were kind of on the ground, making sure the customers didn't have an interruption to service.
0: Yeah. As you've built this, you know, COVID 19 obviously is an accelerant, but you'd already built a great business. Uh, you're a relatively young guy, uh, so is your co founder, obviously. Uh, how have the two of you kind of navigated um, building a large, scalable business, raising, you know, over a billion dollars uh, and kind of just really, I think, taking a, a home run swing, if you will, at an industry that, uh, one, has a lot of competition, but also, two, is um, very obvious to people, whoever wins, uh, there will be incredible uh, kind of financial rewards and um, uh, kind of benefit to. How do you navigate that as a as a young, you know, first-time founder? And I put first time in kind of quotes in terms of just like the first time building a really scalable technology-enabled business.
1: Yep. You know, you definitely learned that you can't do it by yourself, right? (laughs) We've, uh, you know, internally and externally, we surrounded ourselves with people that, you know, we call it 10Xing, right? The business is growing 3X year over year. You have to be 10Xing yourself, right? It starts with kind of all the coaches that we have around us. We've had some really, really amazing people that have been able to 10X myself and you cure as human beings. Uh, kind of year-over-year for the last seven years and have taken us to to awesome heights and our leadership team, right? We we know what we know and we know what we don't know. We've hired a lot of really amazing people from all over the world uh, to come in and help us really scale this business, whether it's figuring out kind of the operational functions of this business, the supply chain functions of this business, the marketing, you know, technology, product, merchandising, the whole nine yards, right? We have some of the best specialists from all over the world. Uh, that are helping us solve uh, these problems day in and day out. And you kind of, you kind of long, learn along the way, but, you know, in our opinion, right, the secret sauce is people. I and mean, really making sure that, you know, whether, again, whether it's a tech issue or an operational process issue, it comes down to, like, how good are your humans? How well do they culturally match with you? And then how do you scale? You know, our, our business is not an easy business to figure out. We have a lot of moving parts, right? We have... You know, this WMS that we built from scratch that powers our micro fulfillment centers and the bidding and batching technology and then the routing technology to get to the driver. All of it had to be built kind of one step at a time, but it really came down to like the the quality, uh, both from a value match and, you know, technical expertise perspective of the people
0: that we brought. Got it. And you've mentioned kind of coaches a couple of times. Are these investors who are acting as coaches? Are they like executive coaches? Are they just people on an advisory board? Unpack that a little bit for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's more like, like it's become, you know, it was, it started as something formal and it's become something that, you know, like we're we're I'll give you an example. Uh, You know, one of the guys who's, who's taught me uh, so much of what I know about merchandising is this guy, Tom Belios. He's the co-founder of a uh, five below uh, company in the in the East Coast and uh, you know he scaled three massive businesses in his lifetime uh, he's I think Tom is 30 or 35 years older than me and one of my closest friends and uh, has taught me a lot to this day has continued to teach me a lot and I have an analog to to Tom in uh, many different spaces in the business whether it's kind of the BD function or the investment relations function that helped like again 10x secure and I right we're, we're pretty much me and my co-founder are like a unit <laughs> we're, we're, we're both, uh, two halves of a single CEO. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately all these people that we've gotten on board, uh, both investor and non-investor, um, have really helped myself in your scale.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, in terms of the funding that you guys just, uh, took in, what are you planning to do with the money?
1: You know, for us, it's like any other fundraise: make GoPuff uh, more available to customers, uh, all over uh, the country. We have this vision pop of being the world's go-to solution for immediate everyday needs, right? Before we could be the world's go-to solution. We've got to be U.S.'s go to solution. And uh, we have some work to do. We have some, uh, some kind of a heavy lifting to do in California uh, from an integration perspective that's starting immediately. Um, and we have three us markets that we're not in. We're not in New York. We're not in uh, Las Vegas and we're not in New Orleans. We're planning to fix that in the next couple months as well. So, you know, ultimately for us, uh, we want to aggressively focus on, uh, on the U.S. Uh, this upcoming year and then uh, go into achieving kind of a, a broader, uh, you know, world's go-to solution uh, as we then uh, start achieving the, the U.S. go-to solution first.
0: What's the thing that you could envision five or 10 years from now you guys being involved in in terms of whether it's a market category or a geography that would be the most surprising to people today?
1: Oh God! Uh, I think services would be would be hmm. something that's really interesting where I mean we're testing a lot of things uh with our c b g partners uh today. I don't want to divulge too much, but uh that uh, uh that are really, really exciting that are it's out, it, it utilizes vertical and utilizes our model, but it's very different than how people think about gopuff today um and it's something that we're really, really excited about uh, we'll be piloting in the next couple of quarters. Uh, but that along uh, with three or four, at least, at least three new verticals uh, launching in the first half of next year, stuff that we're really, really excited about.
0: Got it. Uh, as the CEO, you basically sit there and you worry about three things. You worry that you've got enough money in the bank. You worry about all the things that you're doing well and then all the threats to the business. What do you see as the biggest threats to the business in terms of you know the next 12 to 18 months that kind of keep you up at night or at least you're thinking about? You know, I used to,
1: you realize it's all the same thing, right? Like, you know, six years ago, I'd be like, how are we going to scale the operations portion of this business or the supply chain function? Or how are we going to get engineering leadership in Philadelphia and like really scale that and then productly, but then you realize it's all like, you know, people the execution base, right? It's like, are like, can we out execute everyone else? Can we get the right folks in place? Right? Like, again, lessons learned over seven years, a bad hire really sets you back months. Uh, so, like to, to this day, you know, you care and I still every, interview every single HQ employee, right? It's an entire weekend, right? I'm going back and forth and really, really honing in and making sure that the, this person that's joining in is the right culture fit. Uh, so, for us, it's all about like execution risk. Like, we're two pretty aggressive uh, co founders that, you know, are moving very, very fast. And our ability to remain aggressive and impress on the accelerator more um, is our biggest opportunity and risk in this business.
0: How has your relationship with your co-founder changed over time? People always talk about, uh, you know, kind of, you have the quintessential story, which I think people love is like, Hey, we met in college first day. It was basically, we knew that we were going to be friends. Uh, and now years later, you've built this massive business together, uh, but it's not the same relationship I'm assuming. So how has that evolved over time?
1: You know, you care pretty different, right? Um, you know, you cure, Uh, is a natural introvert who's becoming more, who's become more extroverted over the years. I'm an extrovert who's become more introverted over the years. Um, But I'd be hard pressed to find two other people that have internal values that are more aligned than you care and I, right? Like we spend 17 hours a day together, which my fiance thinks is a little weird, but you know, it it, it is, it is what it is, right? Like we're, we're here in Florida. We're in the, the same house together. Uh, we live in the same apartment building. We just bought two houses in Philadelphia that are right next to each other. Like we are very, very, very close. Uh, closer than I think I know anyone else to be. And you know, you Kira and I get into a lot of arguments with other people where we're very passionate when it comes to our customers, but we very, very rarely argue with one another because we're so aligned on how we see the world and then ultimately how we see this business developing. So I think the biggest gift Uh, that college gave me was a cure, right? It wasn't like, you know, this education, go up, everything right? is is amazing, but the foundation was us finding each other and then being able to be so aligned to create such a great business and uh, be able to have the privilege of scaling it.
0: Is there a story that kind of highlights one time where you guys did disagree and how you were able to kind of figure out where the common ground was. Cause it's interesting. Um, you know, I've got four younger brothers and I'm assuming that your relationship, uh, with him is very similar to almost a brother where, uh, you, you get in arguments, but you always know at the end, like, Hey, love you. And you know, tomorrow we're going to be fine. Uh, any stories there that, that can kind of highlight how that's played out for you guys?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, we, uh, we entered New York, uh, as our sixth market before we raised any money. And, um, you know, we were we we're feeling good about ourselves, right? We were feeling good that we figured out this model. We were figuring good that we figured out product market fit. You know, it's kind of like a high almost, right? Like it, everything is going right. And then something goes terribly wrong, right? Uh, we entered New York where we were grossly unprepared to be in New York. We were, the company was seven people. Um, it was, it was pre-funding. We actually, ju- we were just raising, it was the middle of us raising our round. And we desperately wanted to make New York work, right? And New York just required technology and capabilities that the 2014 year old versions of ourselves just didn't have. And, you know, I was very stubborn about making it work. I was very stubborn because we had so much customers and we were making work and our customers loved us. It just, we were, by, by, by the point we decided to shut it down and now reopen it years later, uh, we had already been in 14 markets, but New York was taking more time than the other 13 combined together. And you're kind of like, like, I don't know why we're doing this. I don't know why we continue to hit our head against the wall. We're not able to scale. It's really a crutch. And uh, yeah, it kind of stands out as a place where it's like, we kind of went at each other and it's like, you know, we got to be there. And then ultimately he was right. He was right. Um, you know, leaving New York was the best thing that we did as much as it pains me because I, I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, but, you know, ultimately now we're so much better prepared, right? We're, uh, I don't even recognize <laughs> the 2014 year old version of, uh, uh, of our company. Uh, but we were grossly under, unprepared to enter a market. And I think if we continued to bang against the head against the wall in New York, we would have been in a much different position today. So it's like, in that case, two heads was much better than one. Uh, we kind of came together. Uh, we hashed it out. Ultimately I think made the best decision for the business, uh, and now can enter New York in a, in a much more aggressive fashion.
0: How was fundraising during uh, kind of this pandemic era? I'm assuming most of it was over Zoom, and, and was it any different than the other fundraising rounds that you guys have done, uh, or anything worth uh, kind of talking about there? So for us, uh, this latest round
1: uh, was kind of co-led by an existing investor and a new investor. For the existing investors, right, you, you know them very well, and they're like kind of seeing how the business is transforming. They're like, they're like, holy shit, right? This is literally on fire growing so much uh kind of not month over month but week over week uh and we got a lot of action from from other folks Right, a lot of people were, were noticing how much this business was growing and, and for us you know just like you know employees right it's really important that you really culturally vibe with the person that that's going to be with you right raising money is like a, a marriage that you cannot divorce so you got to be really certain that like these people that you're bringing into into the fold uh really have the same vision for the organization as you do and uh for us d1 had that same vision right uh dan sunheim's great great guy akira was uh, was spending a lot of time with them uh and ultimately for us that was like predominantly like a zoom and phone call thing but we still had to be sure that like these are our guys for scale and uh, i think they uh they enjoyed the the performance that we've had over the last couple years and uh the the kind of model that we built but we had a lot of guys on the table ultimately being very very selective on uh, on who we want them to bring into the fold.
0: What's the number one thing that you've learned since you started the business, right? I'm sure there's a million things, but in your mind, like what's like the thing that sticks out as uh, this was either the most important lesson, the thing that surprised me the most from when I started to today?
1: Yeah, you know, young founder, we try, I think we try to do it all, right? Like you try to do everything. Uh, yeah, I, I still only sleep like five, six hours a night, right? Like it used to be a lot less, but you know we're still seven days a week. we this is all we really know. Uh, but if we had started hiring earlier and started really bringing on the talent that we brought on like 2015, 16, and beyond, like two years prior, I think we would have been even more ahead. So like again, going back to you, you know the the thing that I learned, biggest lesson was was all around people and the kind of people that you bring on board and really making sure culturally you're building the right organization. Uh, so we spend a lot of time on kind of rethinking that, rethinking about, you know, what our core values look like, what is the personality of like, you know, we call it a team oriented super athlete, right? <laughs> and the super athlete became table stakes and there's so many lessons learned kind of along the way from a cultural standpoint. Uh, but it's what helps you kind of move at warp speed, right? It's what helps you launch business units that take others nine months and 30 days um and ultimately getting those right group of individuals was uh the most painful lesson i think we learned early on because i think that organization would have been much bigger than what it is today you know no regrets right all, all, all learnings and kind of meaningful steps forward but the secret sauce is definitely people
0: as you've experienced kind of COVID, there's been lots of benefits to the business, but obviously it kind of forced everyone home. Uh, were there changes to the culture or things that you guys did to, uh, to kind of ensure that uh, everything kind of ran the way that you wanted it to run, even though uh, people weren't coming into the office as often?
1: Yeah, so um, ultimately, we continued to do the things that were, were important uh, for, for GoPOP, right? Every week, me care addressed the whole company. Uh, we made sure we over-indexed in uh, in team meetings, so Yechiar and I were were present in all those things. But it really came down to to the leadership we had in the org as a whole, and really, really making sure we're over-aligned with our leadership team. So on the leadership team basis, we went from you know having one-on-ones obviously with all of our leaders uh, every single week, and kind of on a uh, on a, a less formal basis to meeting with the LT team every single day. Right. There's there's time on the on the calendar for one hour every single day to really make sure we're overly aligned, we're overly transparent, we're overly thinking about it. And then with the whole org every single Friday. So we spend a lot of time on really making sure we're over communicate. It's not like the same thing where you can just walk in the head of your BD's office, you know, chat aggressively with him for 10 minutes and leave. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it, you got to really make sure you're, you're overcorrecting for that. So that's what we did. And, you know, even on the, on the non-business side, we recognized that as GoPub was doing really well, others weren't, right? So we partnered with uh, dozens and dozens of local businesses, putting their products into GoPub, some of which, uh, we heard from, from their owners later would not have survived, uh, without GoPub. And, you know, it was a really amazing feeling internally to now one, give locally beloved products to the customers we love, but also help, uh, uh, organizations that were kind of feeling the other side of the pandemic and their business affected in a very adverse way.
0: Where'd the name Gopuff come from?
1: I wish uh, I wish I could tell you uh, like a really remarkable story, or like uh, it's it's not it's not as exciting, right? It's a it's a name that really intrigued interest uh, among our, our friends uh, in college. I got to tell you, right? it's a name that our customers love today. Right? We talk a lot about our customers about the name and uh, the transit of the name, and you know, today we to have millions of active users uh, that are using the the platform. And it's a name that our customers really love, and a name that really treats them. So ultimately, uh, it's it's something that we thought of in college. Right again, no secret. Uh, this business started in college, uh, but it's a name that attracts a whole host of new customers today. Uh, again, less than 15% of our user base today is college.
0: The most important question I'm going to ask you today is, uh, are you still having fun? I think I'm
1: having more fun now than ever before, right? I can't, I can't imagine doing anything else, right? Again, I have no other hobbies. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is it for me, right? Uh, I love it. I'm doing it with another human uh, that I love. He like uh, really like a brother to me. And uh, the kind of folks that we have on board, you know, I'd be hard pressed to find uh, another LT team and another management team like ours. Um, I'm really excited for for what uh, the next weeks and months have ahead and ultimately getting out of 2020 and uh, going into 2021 really strong.
0: I love it. Uh, I always ask everyone the same two questions to end it. And then you'll get to ask me one as uh, as the final thing. First question is, what is the most important book that you've ever read?
1: uh uh this one uh this one is easy uh it's trillion dollar coach uh i don't know if, uh, if you read that one it's uh, a great it's one. one yeah it's one that i really really love uh and uh I see a lot of analogues in my own life on uh on uh, on that book and ultimately how uh how that book has uh, shaped uh the lives of so many people um in Silicon valley and
0: otherwise. Absolutely. Second question is more fun. Aliens. Are you a believer or a non-believer?
1: I think, I think aliens exist. I, we, we had this, it's funny. We talked about this last night at two in the morning with the cure. <laughs> <Literally>, <laughs> what, what was the debate? You is a hard on aliens, a hard, like he's like, there's no, there's no, there's, he's like, there's no fucking aliens in the world. That's it. I don't believe it. can't convince me. I'm like, I feel like there's aliens.
0: I'm glad you're the one who came on the podcast then, because I I don't need any uh, anti-alien people to uh, keep spreading that nonsense. I'm with you. No, no, no. I think there's aliens out there for sure. (laughs) Uh, You could ask me one question to finish up. What do you got for me? Uh, You've been
1: doing this for for two years, right?
0: Yep. What
1: is the biggest surprise for you, man? What's the number one thing, uh, the biggest insight you could give me?
0: I think everyone's way more similar than they are different for sure. Uh, And if I had to really boil down, you know, all these successful people and uh, entrepreneurs, investors that come on, uh, there's no secret to success. Like you just got to do the work. Um, And that's like, sounds pretty simple, but people kind of lose sight of that. Uh, And then the second second thing I think is, um, and and you actually said it earlier, is like, you can't do it alone, right? It it really is uh, every single person who comes on and tells a story of success uh, will explain whether it was their parents, whether it was uh, family members, friends, investors, coaches, colleagues, whatever it is. There's always um, a a multitude of people in their life uh, who kind of helped them along the way. And uh, you know, every story is different, but they all have those common traits. And so, when you just hear it over and over and over again after talking to hundreds of people, you're like, you know what? This thing isn't really that complicated. The hard part is staying kind of persistent and disciplined, uh, and just doing it for years and years and years. And I think, you know, your story is a perfect example of that, of, you know, as you get kind of seven, eight, 10 years into a business, you start to realize like, we know what to do. It's just an execution and people thing. Right. And so I I think that you're spot on and uh, obviously the results speak for themselves so far. Got a long way to go. Long way to go. We're just getting started here. (laughs) Love it. Where can we send people to uh, find you on the internet or find more about GoPuff? You can download the the app and uh, just go up on the App Store, Google Play, or go to gopub.com. All right. Are you on the internet anywhere or are you hiding?
1: Yeah. Just, uh, Ra- Raphael, I have a long Russian last name. Ilishayev. Uh, you can find me Instagram, Twitter. I'm all over. All right, man. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. I'll to do it again in the future. Thanks so much.